Hello, and welcome to Workle's Workplace Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. I'm absolutely thrilled and delighted to be joined on this edition of the Workplace Happiness Podcast by Joe Ruxton. Joe is the founder and director of uh, Plastic Oceans UK, and uh, as many of you may know, she was the producer of the film A Plastic Ocean, which David Attenborough described as the most important film of our generation, and rightly so. Jo started her career with the BBC as a producer and then moved on to set up Plastic Oceans UK just over a decade ago. Jo, it's absolutely wonderful to have you on the Workplace Happiness podcast. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. I also feel I should just make a slight correction to that introduction um, because I didn't start at the BBC as a producer. I started um, further down the chain as a researcher on the first Blue Planet series. And there was an awful lot to learn and experience before um, I got to the stage where I was producing. So let's come on to that. What I'm keen to know, and I'm sure everybody listening is keen to know, when you were at school, were you an eco-warrior and were you mad keen on getting into TV production? Um, neither of those. I wanted to be a vet. I knew I wanted to work with animals, but I don't think there were such things as eco-warriors um, in those days. Um, I didn't even come across Rachel Carson's book, The Silent Spring until much later when I was actually studying biology and realized how powerful it was in my life and imagined where I might go with it. But I would say certainly in the early days, I just knew I wanted to work with animals. That all stopped when I discovered that training to be a vet would add another seven years of study onto school. And I just wanted to get out from formal lessons and start um, enjoying myself. So yeah, there's been many careers. This is, I think, my sixth one. So, so let's just go through where, where you started then. So uh, you went to university. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and when you finished your degree, which, as you say, was in biological sciences, yeah. what, what, what did you do then? You won't believe this, actually. So my ambition in life was, um, I thought, to get married and have children. And I thought that that would bring me all the happiness that I wanted. And absolutely, to an extent, that has been an incredible part of my life. But I think the more I was learning about the planet, the more I wanted to try and do something. And just joining an organization as a member and perhaps buying my Christmas cards from them didn't seem to be enough. Um, I grew up as an RAF child, so moved around the world a lot with my family. Um, I then married another RAF child and we moved to Hong Kong when I was pregnant with my second one. And Hong Kong is a real crossroads um, for people on their way visiting Asia, on their way to Australia, Indonesia and so on. Um, It's the kind of place you can reach um, other places easily and relatively cheaply. 
and you meet a real cross-section of people. And when my youngest had gone to school, I, I wanted to do something more than just be the expat wife. And um, I uh, started working for WWF. And by then I was um, a diving instructor and I was diving every weekend in Hong Kong. But I realized even then that very few people knew what was going on in Hong Kong waters. You know, to me, it was a place where I was learning all about corals. I found out that we had more species of coral there than the whole of the Caribbean. And yet people say, why are you diving here? Isn't it really dirty and all the rest of it? But of course you pick where you go and the things that I encountered were amazing. And from there, it was very easy to go to places like the Philippines and Thailand and Malaysia and really experience everything that uh, that part of the world has to offer underwater. And I wanted to tell people about it. Um, I did some voluntary work for WWF um, and then was asked if I would be interested in joining them to start their marine program because they didn't have one. And it was an absolute blank canvas for me. Suddenly all my passion for the underwater world could do some good. And um, I started initially um, realizing that even the teachers there who had grown up in Hong Kong, who had chosen environmental subjects, because I'm talking about biology teachers, had no idea that there were corals in Hong Kong. And if people like that didn't know about it, how could we expect engineers coming in from other countries who were dredging up the whole territory to create this massive new airport? How could you expect them to understand? But I think what really, really smacked me over the head was the fact that at the end of one of these particular talks I'd given to all these biology teachers, I showed some footage of the pink dolphins in Hong Kong. And these are beautiful, I mean, they really are pink dolphins in the western part of the harbour that you can see any time, most times when you go out looking for them. And they were saying, but we don't have dolphins here. And yet these live there all year round. And there's another species as well, a finless porpoise that lives there. And nobody knew. So it was, it was really starting from the beginning and also trying to convince government that we needed to protect the special areas that we had. Um, and that just started the whole focus, bringing together all of my interests and doing something with it. And then when I was leaving Hong Kong, um, the opportunity came up at the BBC to work on the Blue Planet. And um, that's how I made that jump and, and started at the bottom again, learning all about television and, and uh, you know, as much as I could about that. So I've never really stopped learning. There were a couple of other careers that in medical sales and things like that. So probably not worth uh, concentrating on now. So, so coming back to the UK um, mm. from Hong Kong, how was that? Good and bad. It was very hard to leave a place that I'd been living in for 14 years that I knew so well. And particularly as I was one of the heads of departments, so I was quite high up in the food chain. And when I started with the BBC, it was made very clear to me that I was completely dispensable and that my opinion didn't really count. And uh, I just thought, my goodness, I've done a complete career nosedive. I also took a 60% drop in salary. And I, I did all this with a six month contract and bringing my two teenage daughters with me. Actually, one wasn't a teenager then, bringing my two young daughters with me. And it seemed like I was jumping off a cliff. And of course, until you jump, you never know if you're gonna fly. And, um, you know, keep, keeping airborne, if you like, was, uh, was a perpetual issue but um and then did you move to bristol was the bbc Natural i moved to bristol, bristol because that's where the natural history filming is yes yeah, so up sticks and did a big uh, a big career and continent move 
and and how how did you find those early days with the BBC? Um, not easy at all, actually. Um, just going from a position, you know, where where I had a say to to one that I got to the stage where even if I'd found something amazing that I thought we we might like to concentrate on, I I didn't like to say it because. I, I just knew that I was my, my opinion and my thoughts were just appeared to be irrelevant, and um, it, it yeah it, it took a long time and I don't really think that I got beyond that even after that twelve year um, cycle. I mean, I, when we were making Blue Planet, for example, um, we were going to do a series to run parallel with it about conservation issues, and the funding didn't come through because Discovery didn't think that people were interested in conservation. It's interesting looking back on it because how can people be interested in something they don't know? You know, it's made such a difference now. Um, but even one of the early shoots, we were filming pilot whales off southern Spain, and it's where all the polytunnels are that grow all the winter vegetables and salads for us. And um, the, the wind is very strong in that particular strait. And there were times when there were just swathes of polythene in the water around us with the pilot whales who are you know coming very close because they're inquisitive animals and i just thought we need to be doing this we need to we need, even if it's behind the scene things you know what while this was going on look what was happening and, and and just sow the seeds that there were problems with plastic you know if we'd done that 20 odd years ago um we, we might have been able to prevent a lot of the things that are happening now because as soon as people are aware they care about it they want to do something so it, it was, um, yeah, it, it was an interesting time. And don't get me wrong, I have no regrets about it because I think what I'm doing now is combining both careers and, and um, you know, realizing that, you know, if, if you stand your ground, then people will listen and, and change can happen. And then obviously you became a producer. Tell us about being a producer and the things that you produce. I didn't produce that many, actually. Um, I think the one that stands out for me was the one I enjoyed the most, which was part of a series called Pacific Abyss. And uh, it, it's interesting because we did um, a 2000 mile journey across Micronesia. So we started off in, in Truck Lagoon and then we went across um, a whole string of islands, uh, some of which um, people had never dived on before. So we had our own uh, compressor, obviously, and we're just going to places that were just completely new to us. But what the important point of that trip was that we had a team of deep diving biologists on board. And by deep diving, I mean anything from 75 to 200 meters. Um, so I was part of the shallow team. So we didn't go deeper. I think I, the deepest I went was 60 on that, but you know, most of the time 30 averaging. And um, they were looking for new species of fish in what they call the twilight zone, um, which is the area where divers tend not to go to and it's too shallow for submersibles and, and ROVs to bother with. And in that journey, uh, over um, six weeks, we, they discovered 27 new species of fish. And these aren't just little sort of tiny, indistinguishable fish. They were beautiful, colorful fish that nobody had clapped eyes on before. And there's so much we don't know about the ocean. If we were able to find that many, it's very unusual in this day and age to find a new vertebrate. But, you know, there they all were and what else is down there? And, and my concern is the amount of damage we're doing without even knowing what we're going to be missing. And um, it, it, it really stuck with me, that journey. But 
for many other reasons. I mean, what a privilege uh, to go to those places and to see it. But there was another part of that story that um, also rings true. And it was as we were going across, some of those areas don't have modern charts for the seabed. And we saw one, um, the, the deep sea guys had a very, very old chart from the early 1800s that had been drawn up by um, a Japanese team. And it looked as if there was a sunken atoll where we were, and we were a long way offshore. And um, it, the, the, the center of what would have been, you know, a volcano was at about 17 meters. Sorry, the, the peaks were at about 17 meters. The crater was at about 30. And then the outside of it went all the way down to the abyss. Now we should have seen incredible uh, fish activity there, particularly sharks, because that, that whole region is very, very sharky and the sharks are all well fed and it's the most amazing experience to be in with them. So we were expecting to see a lot, but we didn't. And to me, that should have been a big part of the story that here we were in this area that's known for sharks and there are none here. And it wasn't until later that we discovered that it's an area where many fishermen just put these massive nets across and take it. And that's a conservation story I wanted to get in there. But at the last part of the edit, when the, the next team come above the producers, it's like, oh no, we don't want bad news stories. People want to be entertained. And I found it so frustrating because how can we know they don't want these stories? If they don't want bad news, why do they watch the news three or four times a day? You know, there's not a lot of good news happening, but everybody still tunes in and watches. So if we know things like this, surely it's going to change the way we behave, the way we buy our goods. There's so many reasons why I think we need to credit people with offering them an opinion and, you know, whether this is right and whether they want to get involved and whether they want to change this, you know, how, how can we know if they care if we don't tell them? And, and looking back over that time at the uh, BBC, mm. what are your happiest memories? Oh, definitely going on location. <laughs> Uh, you know, otherwise you're just doing what everybody does. You sit in front of your computer and you, you make phone calls and you, you type. Um, which was interesting because at least it was, you know, I was studying things I absolutely love and am passionate about, but actually experiencing them. Going to places I'd only ever dreamed about, like Antarctica, and having almost, having real special access to it that you can't even buy. I mean, when we were in Antarctica, we were on the um, HMS Endurance for about three weeks of that trip. And we had access to helicopters, so you could quickly get, in, get to a penguin colony or somewhere. But to actually be up there flying with the doors open, looking down over this spectacular view and the colors of Antarctica, everyone thinks it's just white. I mean, goodness, there's every shade of blue. And the older the iceberg is, the deeper the blue is that you can see inside. It was that sort of thing. You, you can't put a price on it. And, and I was also doing diving safety once with the Blue Peter crew. And we'd gone to Egypt. And our guide there was Dr. Hawass, the famous Egyptologist. So we had him to ourselves. But when we went to the pyramids, um, the whole place was shut down to tourists for three hours. So we had access with him to show us around and take us into little tunnels and things where the public don't go. And then when we were doing the underwater stuff, there's a well-known wreck and the Thistlegorm, which was a Scottish supply ship that went down during the Suez crisis. It was bombed right through the center. It is normally absolutely covered with divers day and night. 
but they shut that down to other divers for a day dive and a night dive. And it was just, you know, that sort of thing, that those experiences and the, the people that you meet is, is phenomenal. You meet other people who are so passionate, who put their life work into things or who know the reefs so well or understand a specific species so well. It's such a privilege to have access to those people. So having said that, you had 12 years at the BBC, successful years, but then in 2009 you left and you set up uh, Plastic Oceans Foundation. So, so tell us why you did that. Um, I left, well, I guess I'd, I'd been thinking about it, but the trigger was when they offered voluntary redundancies. And I just felt I wanted to do something else, but you know, it would have been just hard to leave it with a void, but having um, a bit of money to get myself set up was enough of a pull to make me do it. And um, odd time in my life, because I was, as, as far as the BBC was concerned, I was old when I started there. <laughs> so um, to make that trip, you know, when I was already into my fifties was, was, was quite something. And, and I, looking back on it, I don't know whether I'd do it again, but anyway, I, it was a very difficult time. It was a very difficult time trying to attract funds. Um, I'd, I'd actually left at the end of 2008 and then started fundraising for the film just after the world had gone into global recession. So, you know, really bad time to start funding and trying to not only support myself, but to raise funds to make this big global documentary that I wanted to make. Um, I thought about different issues to cover one of which would have been um, ocean acidification. But I knew that if I wanted to make a film that we could get people to watch who weren't already interested in the ocean or interested in conservation, it had to be something that they could feel part of a solution. And ocean acidification does concern me. And to find light at the end of that tunnel that is easy and tangible I found quite a challenge, but when I thought about the plastic thing and started to find out more, it just dawned on me that we're in this situation because in the 1950s, we were told that plastic is disposable and yet plastic was designed not to break down, not to defy nature. You know, you can't just leave it and it disintegrates. It doesn't, it might get smaller, but it never goes away, you know, until it becomes nanoparticles. And even then it hasn't gone away. It can cause even more harm. So just the fact that we'd almost been hoodwinked by advertising, you know, you can have all this stuff for your picnics and never wash up again and you throw it away. Nobody thought, where does it go? What happens to it? And it was becoming so obvious when it was building up in the environment and there were all these stories about what plastic's doing. And I thought, well, if we can do that and start to just get people to think about this behavior, I didn't have the solutions, but I knew if I could get a film that covered it, then the clever people would come out of the woodwork and start you know, looking at alternatives and solutions and things to do with what we have done and, and all the rest of it. So that's why I thought I'd do that film. I never expected it to take <laughs> eight years to make, but that was, you know, because we were sort of fundraising as we went and then suddenly you've got a half made film. And unless you're in the filming business, you don't know just how bad rough cuts look. And, you know, people can't see the potential. It's like four years and this is what you've got. You know, it's very hard to, to bring people on board and convince them that actually it will turn into something. So it was um, a very long process, but all the time I was learning more about it because more science was coming out. I was experiencing more. I mean, the whole film originally had been designed around this phenomenon called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And I was expecting this huge 
floating island of trash three times the size of Texas, you know, out in the middle of the ocean. But the first thing I did was go out there that summer and we couldn't see anything. But what we did see was, you know, so much worse because putting plankton nets in, the closer we got to the center, these things were getting absolutely choked up with microplastics that were outnumbering the tiny planktonic animals that are the heart of the food chain. And of course, the phytoplankton that's producing the oxygen we breathe and absorbing the CO2. So suddenly, the whole idea of a film was <laughs> became a bit tricky because how do you make that interesting? Oh, here's a here's a net full of microplastics. So it was. Um, I, I even thought of doing a, a a radio series instead because there was so much to say but not a lot to 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 show. Um, and it was on that trip I started to try and think about how we could tell this story. And then of course the most charismatic animal on the planet, the blue whale, feeds entirely on plankton. And um, you know that became the the focus of the first shoot but it was another two years after that before I had enough money to get out there and and film them. And and how did you feel um, we've all moved on on oh, the gosh. plastic Usually. over the last 10 years? Yes I, I it, it is incredible how we've moved on and you know at the beginning we were trying to get green groups to sort of come on board with us to sort of become part of the project but nobody was interested other than they might say oh we do a couple of beach cleanups a year and and but you know you're going to be cleaning beaches forever I, I i really wanted to have some collaboration but there was very little interest um and governments weren't talking about it it wasn't part of the school curriculum i would go into schools and talk and show them little clips and you know what i'd learned and you know all the eyes are huge because they hadn't even heard of this and and you know suddenly they get fired up want to do something when i go to schools now they can't wait to show me what they're doing and what they know about it and the models they've made you know there's it's a completely different thing it's on the agenda now with with government with legislation um the producers are starting to think about it people are changing the way they purchase i'm amazed at, at the difference over the last 10 years because more and more people are getting involved science is is really accelerating our knowledge of this and um i i find it quite phenomenal i remain hopeful people say how can you keep going on when you you know you go out there you know living where i live for example all during covid the beaches were absolutely beautiful but as soon as people are coming back there's all sorts of things being left they're not just plastics warm barbecues that people are standing on and burning their feet you know it's 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 phenomenal how people will travel so far to experience a beautiful location and then trash it and go home. Um, you know, we've got a lot, a lot to be done. But the other side of that is the change I have seen. And what really gives me hope is the youngsters that the, they soak up information, they become fired up and they are so powerful. I used to think that you'd have to wait for them to be in policy positions before they could, act, you know, we could see change and, you know, worry that we didn't have time to wait for them to grow up. They're doing it now. They really are. It's, um, it's phenomenal. And so looking back over the last 10 years, what, what do you think has been the greatest success? Given the hard work, I would say the film finally, um, finally being released. Um, certainly the, you know, when I think of how hard it was to get the first Blue Planet um, production to include the environment, you know and and how it really didn't happen um with with the with the blue planet 2 series um i i know that sir david had had gone to see the rough cut and plastic wasn't in there 
And he said, why aren't you doing plastic? You've got to watch a plastic ocean. And then, you know, they put it in and look at the effect it had. That was an incredible catalyst. So to get the power of the BBC behind this topic has been a, made huge changes, you know, throughout the world. So I think that it's awareness has been a massive thing. We're creating wonderful um, resources for school kids of all ages, those that fit with the curriculum, plus extra project work um, written by teachers for teachers. And, um, you know, just the feedback that we get from those, how much they enjoy it and, and you know, from the kids as well as the, as well as the teachers themselves. I, I think just getting that into schools um, so that people will grow up understanding what the problem is, understanding the life cycle assessment of, of plastic, what you, can, what you can expect from it, understanding why it's an amazing material. It saves lives every day in medicine. But what we shouldn't be doing is creating things like coffee stirrers, which will last about 10 seconds. And then where do they go? They will still be around for your great, great, great grandchildren, and probably theirs too. You know, what was the point of that? So it's just understanding it. And that realization is just becoming more and more apparent everywhere I go. And, and I think if you can raise awareness like that, starting with a, with a powerful film and following it with the work that you're doing, the reason that you know, we started um, Plastic Oceans UK was so that the film would have a legacy, not be something that people watch and then on to the next. And, and it, it continues. And, and if you now had uh, a wish, you could wave a magic wand to improve things. What, what would that wish be for? Uh, are we talking about plastic? Yeah, plastic in the ocean. A magic wand would be, I, I'm gonna sound very negative because this should be a very positive answer. The magic wand would be that there was no plastic in the ocean and you could just magic it away. Um, you can't remove plastic from the ocean. Yes, the big bits you can, but the longer it's in the ocean, the more it breaks up into these tiny pieces. And not only that, about 90% have gone down to the sea floor. So they're all mixed in with the sediment and the mud. So you can't just, you can't strain it. You know, we have to stop it getting there. And I guess I'm going to, I'm going to ramble on with this answer. <laughs> The, the magic wand would also make people understand the consequences of their use of plastic. And, you know, yes, it might cost more to move glass bottles around or cost more to have a tin of fizzy drink rather than a plastic bottle. But that money has to be a consideration for protecting the planet because the path that we're on now is pretty rocky. So the money's got to mean more than just money in your in your wallet to spend on frivolous things you know if it's going to help the future then we have to we have to consider spending it and if you look at the um the impact of climate change mm. of either making a, a plastic bottle a glass bottle or a tin bottle mm. um the impact on climate is less with plastic so how do you square those things? What's your answer? It's, it's a complicated um, question, really, because the production of plastic contributes to the whole climate problem anyway. It's the extraction of oil, it, it's the refining and so on. Um, so making so much plastic has contributed 
to the problem with the climate. As far as uh, transporting it around, I think that there are different ways to do it. And one of those is refilling. And, you know, we have taps in, in pubs to refill your glass. There has to be a way of, of taking bottles back and having them refilled. I mean, more and more people now, for example, are, are using a milkman. You know, they were going around in their electric um, milk vans and um, I fill mine up from a, from a store um, up the road where I live. I, I take my milk bottles back and, and I wash them at home. And I just think wherever we can do that, but it's, it's about uh, being intelligent around this. And this, this is what one of our next big um, resources is a, a plastic intelligent framework. And that is to understand that there are ways to look at this. You can become plastic free, but I, I don't think that's practical. And I don't think it recognizes the fact, I think it's, I think it's laudable, don't get me wrong, but I, I, I don't think it, it recognizes how good plastic can be in so many situations. I have two granddaughters that were born prematurely without the plastic to help them breathe, to feed them, the incubator, everything. You know, those little girls might not be in my life. So we need to recognize where its value is and you know, where it is cheap and durable, which is what it was designed to be. But there are ways we can make changes and a whole lot of people making a few changes rather than just a few going to the extremes is going to have a much bigger impact. And if people want to go to the, those extremes, I think it's amazing. Um, but there's, there's, there's so many others that just feel guilty and they feel so guilty that they don't think about it and they probably just carry on the way they were. The other extreme, of course, is to look at um, the, the whole circular economy and getting very involved with that. But what do the people in the middle ground do? We have to understand plastic. We have to understand what it's doing to the environment. We have to understand the differences we can make, cut down when we can. Simple things like, why do we have to have soap now in a plastic bottle that lasts about three weeks and then we go and buy another plastic bottle when we could have a bar of soap that will last longer, it's cheaper and it's not going to involve any plastic. They come either wrapped in paper or in a little cardboard box. You know, butter, why are we buying a new butter dish every time we buy butter? You can buy butter wrapped in paper. You know, if everyone was just to take those little differences, that could start to make changes. So it's examining that, looking at what we can do, doing the easy things while we start to address the bigger things and what can be changed there. I think we've just got to be, we've just got to understand as much as we can and do what we can as individuals and not feel overwhelmed and not feel that you can't make a difference because you, you really can. Every single one of us can. And, and your passion is uh, clear for everybody to hear, Jay. <laughs> Uh, and your contribution go on. is huge. No, you don't go on at all. Your contribution uh, is enormous and the impact you've had. Um, so I know you've done the Workplace Happiness Survey. What I'm keen to understand is whether that passion uh, and um, sense of purpose translates into uh, your Workplace Happiness score. So how did you score? I scored very highly. I scored with a 95%. Wow, that, that is high. I have a wonderful team who, who, without their support, it would be a real struggle. And they are all amazing individuals and they are as passionate as I am and they are a joy to work with, even though I work remotely. And, and it's churlish for me to ask this, but where did you drop the 5%? Oh, um, I think it was things like concerns, one of them, and I was thinking... 
Well, I do get worried because we don't have the funding at the moment. Our funding has fallen off a bit of a cliff during COVID. And obviously there's the concern we have so much we want to do. And, you know, the, the, the funding that, that was coming in fairly regularly is now um, an issue. And so I've got concerns at the back of my mind. Um, but, you know, ever the optimist, I'm, I'm sure we'll find, we'll find a way. Well, knowing what you've achieved over the last 10 years, particularly, uh, I'm sure you'll find a way. Thank because you. as you were saying, it wasn't easy to fund the, the film. Uh, no, and now I'm doing another one and look what's happened. I'm starting to blame myself for these global disasters. To finish, Joe, just a couple of questions. If you were to nominate somebody to take the workplace happiness test, who would you nominate? You were nominated by Belinda. Well, oh, was I? Yes, of course, Belinda Kirk. I know the sort of person I'm, I would nominate. I'm just trying to think of a, a name, but it would be somebody who is, who is making squillions, but I actually wonder if that's making them happy because they might just be doing it for the sake of money or people that work so hard just to get two weeks off. So who might that be? You clearly see a difference between doing a job that has a sense of purpose yes. and doing a job that pays you squillions of pounds. Goodness me, yes. It's, it's interesting living here, actually, because a lot of people don't want to move away from the big cities because you, you get a drop in salary. But to me, it's not about that. Money doesn't make you happy. It, it, is, it is being able to, you know, to, to, to work in your, an area you're passionate with. You know, I, I can go out of here after this now and go and walk by the sea and I don't care if it's raining, actually it's not raining, but I don't even care if it is because whatever's going on in my head, if I can sit and stare at the ocean, it just replenishes my soul, you know, aren't I lucky? And, and, and you know, other people who are, you know, just way up there will be working really hard to get there two weeks when they book somewhere fabulous and come down here and then they drive back and they're back in the city. And tell us, when you're sitting there looking out over the ocean, what piece of music that you could listen to makes you feel happiest? Um, I think uh, La Mer, the French version. It was played um, when, when we used to have the Blue Planet live sessions, the first Blue Planet, when they had, for example, the um, BBC Concert Orchestra playing it. And we had David Attenborough narrating bits where they had the thing at the back. But they played La Mer and honestly, I, it... I well up just listening to it. I absolutely love it. And I, my French isn't even good enough to understand all the words, but it's, um, it's such a beautiful piece of music. On that note, Joe, can I thank you very much for being on this edition of the Workplace Happiness podcast. And also thank you for those practical tips that everybody can take to make our oceans a little bit cleaner and a little bit safer uh, for all the animals that live there. So Joe, thank you very much. Marcus, my absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.